Friends, let us begin. This is Kabbalah and Coffee, and we have a lot to get to today. Um, of course, our series has been dedicated by Ed Zinn in loving memory of his mother, Arden. Um, I want to jump in to a discussion about code, which is a favorite discussion of mine, something that I always like to talk about. I don't know always, but on occasion, frequently, I like to talk about code because I think that it's one of those things in life, in our experience, in modern life, that very interestingly parallels a lot of Kabbalistic teaching on the framework of existence. For example, just for example, the Kabbalists speak extensively about how the universe is created using language, using characters and uh, characters, in other words, letters and words and phrases to create the world. Most famously, it says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, Chapter 5, which just so you know, is an ethical tractate of the Mishnah. The Mishnah typically deals with, um, the Mishnah and the Talmud typically deal with legal matters, the law, right? What is the law? What can you do? What can you not do, right? What is kosher in the larger sense, not just food, but what's kosher, what's not kosher? There's one tractate of the 63 that deals with our personal integrity, that deals with our personal morality and ethics. And that is what is called Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. And in the fifth chapter of Pirkei Avot, it talks about the ten utterances by which the world was created. Now, how is that an ethical teaching? Well, you've got to read the rest of the Mishnah and the rest of the chapter to understand the connection as to why that's ethical, and that's really off-topic for, for the point that I want to raise. The point is that this idea, um, sorry, that the Mishnah about 17, 1800 years ago, already talks about creation happening through God's verbal articulation. Now, disclaimer, God doesn't have a mouth and God doesn't have a physical voice because God doesn't have physical features. Nonetheless, in the Torah, in the Bible, God is referred to as speaking. In the beginning of the book of Genesis, in the, in the story of creation, in the act of creating... The Torah tells us, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be a firmament, a heavens, and there was. God said, let the water separate, let there be a separation between lower waters and upper waters, and indeed, it was. So we have this idea stated in the beginning of Genesis, it's a Torah idea, that God speaks things into being. The Mishnah defines it as 10 specific articulations. And Kabbalah takes it a step further to explain that all of existence, all of creation, the entire universe only exists by virtue of the characters, the letters, the words of creation. In fact, there's a verse that says, that the world is sustained by God's word. The, wor the world is sustained by God's word. La'olam Hashem, Devarcha Nitza Bashamayim. Forever, O Lord, your word, Devarcha, your word stands firm in the heavens. What that means is, according to Kabbalah, is that the language, the code, of creation is not something that was plugged in once, 
you know, one and done, that the world was created and that's it. But rather, as long as the world is sustained, as long as all of this, and literally all of this exists, that tells us one thing, that it must be enlivened, vivified, animated by the code of creation. Nothing just is. Everything is constantly and continuously made to be. And how is it made to be? There are different analogies that we could use, but this one that we're focusing on today, which will come up as a very important idea very soon, is the idea of letters and words. In other words, characters. Not like characters in a story, but the characters, the letter characters that in a book that actually tell the story and that create the characters, right? What brings the characters to life? The characters, the written characters that are, that are uh, dropped down from your typewriter, so to speak, right, onto the page. Anybody still use a typewriter? Probably not. Nonetheless, it's a code and it's language that creates, which is why I find it fascinating to see how you know, how as, as notwithstanding how far things have moved in the last few thousand years, it almost seems like we're coming full circle. How in modern times we imagine creation, we imagine making things, not only imagine, we actually make things through code. Any app, any software, Zoom, what we're all using right now, the technology that we're using, and if you're listening to this on SoundCloud or on, the, or on a podcast later on or on YouTube, watching it on YouTube, whatever it is, however you are consuming this, it is through thousands and thousands of, line of lines of code that are making this possible. And if you were to delete, if you were to take out characters, words, you know, phrases, so to speak, of that code, lines of code, the software would not work. I mean, maybe there's code that doesn't really need to be there that doesn't affect the core functionality. It's possible. But if you tamper with the code, most likely you're tampering or you're affecting the entire piece, which tells us something very powerful off the bat. And this is something that we need to really think about. There is no such thing as a small character. There is no such thing as a small character. Every character is essential. There's no such thing as one letter. I mean, think about, let's move from creation and coding to health and medicine, right? We know that DNA is comprised of, okay, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist, but it's comprised of, I believe, also, some level of characters, is that correct? Some sort of character's code, yes? Something like that. And you have a genetic mutation, right? One, one letter, one character, one, one piece of the code that is not the way that it ought to be, perhaps, or the way that it typically is, and that could cause a whole host of, of challenges. In other words, one little detail one little letter that's off or that's, that's different than the way it is typically and it can affect the entire picture. 
which also relates to Torah. The law, and my point is to focus on the power of one. That's really my point here. The power of one. One is not insignificant. One is tremendously significant. I remember reading, I'm going to get back to my next example. Let me just drop the example, and then I'm going to segue and then come back. Um, the example I want to give is regarding the letters of Torah. So if I forget where I'm going with this, then just, let, just remind me, letters of Torah. Now, there was once a rabbi who, not once a rabbi, there's a rabbi in Australia, Rabbi Moss, and he writes an article for Chabad.org, a question and answer article. Like people ask questions and he writes answers. I mean, I don't know. I think he writes the questions and the answers. Nonetheless, here's the deal. I don't have inside information, but it's... Anyway, that's what it seems like. The point is, so one time, um, this fellow writes the question. This fellow writes the question. And the question is, Rabbi, why are mitzvot so important? Why are the details of the mitzvot so important? It's like you have to light Shabbat candles 18 minutes before sundown and we're not supposed to light it. Like once, you know, sundown comes, which is called in Hebrew shkia, once that happens, like, oh, it's Shabbos and you get, what's the big, like 30 seconds later is going to kill anybody. Like what's the big deal? And, and, and when you build a sukkah, it has to be like this and matzah has to be 18 minutes and the prices can't be, I mean, the, the, the dough can't be inflated, right? As David pointed out this morning, right? That, right? So, so every mitzvah has its detail. Why, why is it so? Does God really care about the details? Is it that important? And furthermore, this fellow writes to, the, to Rabbi Moss in this Q&A column. Furthermore, I asked you this question last week. Sorry. Uh, last month, and you didn't get an answer. Rabbi, I feel like you're avoiding the question. So Rabbi Moss writes back to this questioner. He writes back, and he says, so first of all, I did write you back a month ago, right? And I'm surprised that you're saying that I didn't. Oh, oh, I just checked. Instead of putting your email address at gmail.com, I just wrote at gmail.com, but it's only one dot, and one little dot doesn't make a difference, certainly, right? Ah, oh, it does. One little dot determines or will dictate whether it reaches the recipient or it doesn't. Anyway, his point was, of course, that details matter, and we know details matter. And although we might want to say, well, why would God care about the details? We live in a detail-oriented world, and details matter. You know, let's talk about football. Why? Because it's always a good opportunity to talk about football. Football, they call a game of inches. Why is it a game of inches? That's the way it is. It's a game of inches. I remember in the 80s, when I was a kid, there was a great running back. If you're not a football fan, then just... You are Ellie Solish? Okay, Ellie Solish is a football fan. Ellie Solish, you are six years old. And you are a football fan. When I was six years old, there was a running back on the Chicago Bears, and his name was Walter Payton. And he was a real... Hey, Riva. Good to see you. He was a wonderful running back. And I remember reading, a, I think it was a kid's book about Walter Payton, again, published in the 80s. And um, I think it said something to the effect... Oh, yeah, Chicago. It's interesting. We got Chicago representing... So I, I believe 
was a kid's book, or maybe it wasn't a kid's book, about him. Maybe, I think he was still playing, and he was basically writing, or he was quoted as saying, that he has probably gained hundreds or thousands of yards after the play, you know, when <laughs> extending the ball just a few inches. You know, when they get tackled, they extend the ball a drop. So what's interesting is like when the game is on the line, when things are tight, they'll measure, they'll replay. But, you know, in the beginning of the game, they kind of estimate where the ball ended up. They're not really looking that close. But last play, you got to get to the end zone. Every inch matters. Football is called the game of inches. Are you inbounds? Are you out of bounds? Did you cross the goal line or, or did you not cross the goal line? It's a game of inches, right? Yes, good. All right, so what's the point? Details, details matter. Details matter always. Detail ma details matter in our lives, right? You give a credit card and it's one, let one number off. So what's the big deal? Charge is not gonna go through. It's just not going to go through. Now, you could ask the question. It's a valid question to ask. Yeah, but if God is designing his own system, so certainly God knows the intention. So does God really care about, you know, if I get all the details right? And the answer is, oh, good morning. Good to see you. The answer is, the answer is God definitely loves us and God definitely considers our intention. In fact, the Talmud says, that if somebody has a good intention but doesn't end up doing the good deed, Hashem kind of moves it over to, considers it as though it were done on some level. Nonetheless, there's something about actually getting it done, even if it's just for us, even if we know that we had the discipline to light those Shabbat candles within that 18-minute span before sundown, even if it's just for us. All right, getting back to my point. So there was once a rabbi. I'm getting back to the Torah, letters of Torah point. All right, just, just so you know, I got back myself. <laughs> um, all right, so there was once a rabbi. This is back in the 1940s in the United States of America. This is after the previous Lubavitcher rabbi, Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, emigrated to America in 1940. He lived here for 10 years, 1940 to 1950, passed away in 1950. So in those 10 years, he relocated the yeshiva, the, the, the main Chabad, Lubavitch yeshiva from Europe. It was in Russia, then in Europe, relocated it to Brooklyn. It was at Bedford and Dean for a while. That's where many of you know my grandfather. He's now he's been on classes on Zoom lately um, with my mom. My grandfather was one of the in those early class in the 1940s, he was in those early classes, and the previous Rebbe would send out his students out into communities outside of New York, outside of New York State, to open up yeshivot, to open up schools, day schools, to create any sort of Jewish infrastructure um, that that was needed then. My grandfather went around to New Haven, to Worcester, to different places to help get, get day school started. He eventually moved to Pittsburgh um, in the 1940s. That's, that's where you were. And that's, yes, and that's where I was, yes, that's where I grew up also in Pittsburgh. And, right, yes, 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 yes. And the yeshiva is still going on today. He was one of the first teachers over there in the school. 
Anyway, let's get back to the point. So there was, there was, there was a young man, a young yeshiva student who was sent out amongst these. There weren't that many, by the way. It was like a few dozen. <laughs> it was a really small, fledgling uh, yeshiva. Anyway, one of the guys went out, and uh, he went out into some communities for various opportunities. For very, maybe it was a holiday. Maybe it was, uh, who knows. He comes back, and the previous Rebbe says, so what did you share with the community? Again, I don't know if this was for a school or for a community or for a holiday, you know, in a synagogue, giving a, a guest sermon or like, I don't know. I don't know what it was. I forget the, the details of the context. Anyway, the, the rabbi said to, something to the effect of, well, I, this young rabbi, you know, I went around. Sorry, when I spoke to the, to, the, to the congregation or to the community, I said the following. I said that everybody is essentially, all of us are critically important. Hashem wants and need, God wants and needs all of us, like a Torah scroll. What's the example? Huh? What? Hashem can hear us, yeah. Yeah. So, um, every one of us is loved and wanted and needed by Hashem, by God. Like he said, and this is him reporting back to the previous rabbi, and this is what he told the people, like a Torah scroll. What does it mean like a Torah scroll? The Torah scroll has uh, several hundred thousand letters in a Torah scroll. It's said that there are 600,000 letters, uh, not exactly, it's somewhere in the 300s, but if you count the white spaces in between, then you can get, like, the, the, the character breaks, you know, like, if you're, if you get, sometimes those little boxes come up, you have a maximum of, like, um, or, like, Twitter or something, whatever, you have a maximum of, like, 80 characters, it counts the spaces also, you know that, right? Yeah, it counts the spaces. So with the spaces, you got about 600,000. But either way, so he was telling, he said, he, he told the people, told the community, the congregation, that the law is when it comes to Torah scroll, that if one letter, guys, listen to this, if one letter of the Torah scroll is missing, one letter out of 300 and something thousand, if one letter is missing, you know what the, you know what the law is? What's the law with the Torah scroll? It's no good. It's no, you can't read from the Torah. Now, you can fix it. Doesn't mean it's beyond repair. It doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's doomed, God forbid. Right? Huh? If one letter is missing, yeah. If one letter is missing, you can't use it. You can't read from it on, on Shabbat. Now, you could say, well, wait a second. Hold on. One second. There's three, I forget the exact number. There's 300 and whatever thousand letters that are perfectly written. And one letter is missing. Or one letter is um, faded. Or one letter is, has a, you know, is cracked. Cracked, in other words, like there's like a white, it's like cracked, right? The letter's not perfectly drawn. So if that's the, one second, if that's the case, one letter, you tell me it's still not kosher, it doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, what if that one letter is not at all in the section of the Torah that we're reading today, right? So let's say this last, yesterday we read the Torah portion of Kisisa, Kitisa, which is in the book of Exodus. Let's say there's one letter in the book of Deuteronomy, like three books later, that is missing. One letter that's missing three books later. When we get there, we'll deal with it. You would think, nope. If it's missing one letter, it's not a kosher scroll. Why? Because a Torah scroll has to have complete integrity. It has to be complete and whole, and it cannot be missing anything. 
So that's the way it works. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember you showed us last week um, the, the plush toy Torah? Yes. And you know, there's Torah charms in jewelry. Why is all that permissible? Um, okay, so first of all, it was not a plush Torah. It was an actual Torah. Um, it was an actual printed, not kosher, printed on paper facsimile of a, Torah, of a Torah scroll. But there are plush Torahs as well. Now, your question is, why is it, why is it okay? It's okay because it's not, not okay, if that makes sense. In other words, there's no specific... No, it's okay because it's not, not okay. Right? Because there's nothing specifically that says don't create a Torah scroll that looks like a, a, to, a toy Torah scroll that looks like a Torah scroll that's not a real Torah scroll. When it comes to, for example, the temple items, it says don't replicate those items. But when it comes to a Torah scroll, it doesn't specifically say that. Now, if you use a plush or a toy Torah to read from it on Shabbat, number one, I call that fuzzy logic. I'm kidding. That was for the plush. Um, number one, that wouldn't work. Number two, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't be kosher. So, but again, there's, it's a good question, but there's no specific thing that says, oh, don't do it. So therefore it's been done. You know, I mean, it's, I, I haven't thought too much about it. I, I hear your question. I think it's more to get the kids, uh, you know, excited about it. I was also thinking of the jewelry and I had, you know, like a Torah gem, I mean, charm. And I have seen some analysis on Chabad.org. Interesting. Okay, so maybe I need to look into it. But from what I, my, my experience is I've never heard or encountered anything that says that it's, you know, it wouldn't be okay. Now, if you pass off a Torah that's printed, right, as being kosher, well, then that could be a problem, right? Torah has to be handwritten with ink on parchment for it to be kosher. So if you're printing it, you know, mass producing it like mezuzahs or tefillin, if you're printing that stuff or a Torah scroll, which would be harder to print, um, then that's not, that's not cool. By the way, just a, a note of caution, unfortunately, unfortunately, the reality is, even if you go to Israel and buy a mezuzah there, a Torah scroll, whatever, like, not a full Torah scroll, but like a, a mezuzah scroll, you have to be very careful because oftentimes things that are not kosher are being passed off as kosher and sold as kosher. The only way to know if it's kosher is to um, show it to a scribe, a certified Torah scribe, to, uh, to ascertain if it's kosher or not. I mean, my grandfather, he's not, he's not uh, practicing right now, but for many, many years, many decades, he was a scr practicing scribe. Um, not so much writing scrolls, writing new scrolls, but mainly checking scrolls. I had the opportunity f countless hours to be around him while checking scrolls, and just the stuff that comes in is shocking. I mean, the stuff that people buy thinking it's kosher, and it's literally somebody... Photo, somebody copied it on a piece of paper, cut it out, rolled it up, and then sold it for 50 bucks. I mean, it's like, it's, it's on many levels, it's, it's problematic. The, on the most important level, it's just not a kosher scroll. It, do, it doesn't have the sanctity of a kosher scroll. Even, have, even if it has the same letters, it doesn't have the same sanctity. But getting back to our, so with that in mind, you know what? If I'm mentioning it now, when we, we got here, let me just mention something important. It's Jewish law says that twice in every seven years, or at least once every seven years, we should check our scrolls. So if you have mezuzot on your doors, on your home, fill in. If you have whatever um, scrolls that you have, even if you know that they were kosher, you know, at, when you got them, 
If you don't know that they were kosher when you got them, definitely worthwhile to check it. Even if you know it was kosher, it's always appropriate to check. The Rebbe said many times when people would write in with questions, with uh, challenges of health or with challenges of, of, of finances or whatever it is, the first thing that the Rebbe would often say is, check your tefillin and your mezuzot. That is like the number one thing. If you read the Rebbe's letters, first thing was always check your tefillin and mezuzot and let me know. So if you haven't checked them in a while, check them. If you don't have one, let me know. I know a guy. No, I'm kidding. We have contacts with, uh, with scribes and we, we get them all the time. We even have them at Chabad and you can pick them up or from whatever it is, we can, we can hook you up with kosher, legit scrolls. But getting back to this thing, so this rabbi is talking about, this rabbi is talking about, um, you know, how every letter is important in the Torah scroll. And he was telling the community, he was trying to inspire them and saying, every one of us, just like the letters of a Torah scroll, are critically important. And if one of us is missing, if one of us is absent, it doesn't only affect them, it affects everybody. That was his way of rallying the troops. And he reported this back to the previous Rebbe back at headquarters in Brooklyn, in Crown Heights, when he said, so what you talk to the people about? He said, this is what I said. And the Rebbe shook his, the previous Rebbe shook his head and he said, no. I mean, well, almost okay, but you missed one point. We're, people are not like letters in a scroll. They're like the engraved letters of the tablets. What does that mean? When it comes to the soul, a soul can never be scratched out like a letter written on parchment. When you have a scroll, Torah scroll, with ink on parchment, it's possible that the letter could fade. It's possible even that with rolling and unrolling, you know, like a Torah scroll scrolls, right? So with repeated bending and flexing of the parchment, it could be that at some point, the letter disintegrates. Are you with me on that? Yes? And disappears. And there's a way to fix it. You have to rewrite it. Okay. But it's possible that that could happen. But the previous Rebbe said, but a soul never can disintegrate, never can disappear, is always there. So therefore, the, the, the correct analogy is not people or souls to scrolls, but people slash souls to the tablets. What are the tablets? The tablets had, oh, look at this. Thank you. Can I show this to everybody? But let me just finish up with the tablets. The tablets were not written with ink on parchment. I know it broke. One second. But, not, but it, they weren't written with ink on parchment. They were engraved in the stone. And the previous Rebbe said that when it comes to engraved letters, they never disappear. Even if, even if they get um, dirty or they, they, they get some, um, like dirt fills in the engraving, all you need to do is Brush it away, and the letter is there fully intact. And the same thing is true with the soul. The soul never disappears. The soul is never damaged. It's only that maybe a layer of schmutz, a layer of dirt covers it, and all you need to do is wipe it away, and the integrity is there. What's the point? The point is about the power of characters. The power of characters. Okay, so this is the kid's scroll. Um, there was a mishap. There was a mishap where... Two, two kids were using it at the same time, and it ripped, which is good because it's not a real Torah scroll. Yeah. So, it's right now it looks like a Megillah almost. Yeah. Let me just see something here. So like there's two Megillahs. Anyway, this is the kid's scroll. Ah. Kid's scroll. Mm -hmm. 
You, um, uh, Riva, take Riva, Riva, hold on one second, guys. Take this. One second, take that. Ellie, take that, please. Give it to Matag, yeah. All right, back to our class. Here's the point. Characters matter. Letters matter. And the reality is that letters are important, whether they're written or whether they are engraved. Whether they're written or whether they're engraved, they are critically important. And if letters are missing, whether it's amongst people or in the Torah or in software code or in an email, if you leave off the .com at gmail.co or gmail.com or Yahoo, whatever your favorite internet uh, email provider is, either way, the bottom line is the message will not reach the recipient because the details are very, very important. Which brings us back to today's conversation. Because not only did God code the universe, as we said at the top of the class, not only are all the lines of code highly important, but here's where it gets kind of trippy. God entrusted human beings to access the code, to build on the code, but also with the power to break the code. Human beings have the power to help the code or to break the code. Now, does that mean that we could break the code in, an, in a way that completely destroys the entire matrix, the entire system? Can we harm the code in small segments? The answer is yes. This is what free choice is all about. What is free choice? And by the way, in Judaism, there's an understanding that free choice only exists within human beings, not with animals. What I mean by that is that animals have a nature that typically is what it is. Animals don't necessarily have the seichel, the logic, or the, the intelligence to say, look, as an example that I've given before, look, I'm a lion, I'm very hungry, there's a vulnerable deer just innocently drinking a gazelle, a buck, whatever you want to call it, drinking from the stream, from the pond, from the lake. There's no one around, and I'm, star I'm hungry, and it doesn't see me, but you know what? I'm going to do DoorDash tonight. I'm not going to go eat that thing. I don't know that a lion ever made that logical conclusion, but you know what? Human beings not only can, but we must. We must. Someone vulnerable? Yeah? Someone vulnerable and, you can, got, and someone can take advantage of them? What's, wh what's, the, what's the human responsibility? Don't take advantage of them, right? On the contrary, someone's vulnerable, help them. Help them in their vulnerability, right? God forbid to take, of so take, to take advantage of someone when they're vulnerable or to harm somebody in any way, physically, financially, on any level. Chas v'shom, God forbid to do that. I, um, I want to, they're vulnerable, no one's going to know, no one's there to protect. So what? So what? Who does that? Right? We're, that's, what, that's what a standard of a human being is. That's the standard of a human being. Right? When it comes to an animal, no one would ever have any complaints against the lion if the lion attacks the gazelle or the deer, or the buck, whatever you call it. Right? I'm sure there's differences. I don't know. Right? Buck. I think when we went to South Africa to Kruger National Park, I think it was called Buck. Whatever. Either way, no one would ever say, oh, that lion, tisk, tisk, tisk. 
unbelievable, you should really apologize for what you've done. No apology necessary. It's an animal. That's what it does. Animals are not expected to rise above their base nature. Not expected, not criticized if they don't. The entire expectation is they want it, they're going to do it, that's their nature, no problem. Animals in Judaism are not considered to have free choice. What is free choice? Free choice means the intellectual capacity, the spiritual capacity to override one's nature. To say, I want to do this, I feel like I have to do this, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to because it's wrong. That's what human beings can do, and that is the standard that we are held to. By the way, this is the difference between human and mensch. You know, when somebody does something wrong, and people try to justify it, they say, well, he's only human. Yeah? And Judaism says, no. What says he's only human? Be a mensch. You translate mensch, mensch means human, but it means something completely different. When people say he's only human, what that means is, he's only an animal. What do you expect? And Judaism says, that's not an answer. That's not a justification. Human beings are not just animals. We believe in four kingdoms of existence, inanimate, vegetation, animals, and human beings. And we have a mind, a, uh, um, a sense of, of a moral compass, spiritual guidance and wisdom, a Torah, that tells us what's right and what's wrong. And the Torah, said, Judaism says, frankly, it doesn't matter how you feel. So what? So you want to attack the buck drinking from the, from the, from the, um, from the lake because you're hungry? Get over yourself so you're hungry. So someone else has to suffer because you're hungry. Something else, right? Figure it out, right? So you're upset at someone, so you're going to take revenge? Figure it out. Figure it out. Deal with it. But don't harm someone else in the process just because you feel like it. There's a danger in validating emotions. And I'm sorry for getting, you know, maybe a little too off topic over here. Listen, we live in, a, in an era where, where emotions are validated. But th th there needs to be a line also. Because Judaism teaches that not everything we feel is kosher. Not everything we feel is holy. And we have the ability, the divine gift of free choice. So free choice is a gift that is essentially a responsibility and a calling. And free choice says that you and I have a standard to uphold. And free choice also means that you and I can radically fix or repair or, or um, help the code of the universe, or we have the opportunity to break the code and to damage the code, getting back to my code analogy. So let me explain that. An animal, just to kind of tie all the pieces, or these last few pieces together, an animal cannot fix or break the code because an animal essentially runs per the program. A line is programmed like this, and, and within some variation, right, obviously there's a variation, but typically an animal has its nature and that's the way it works. Again, it, even if an animal acts wild, at the end of the, you know, like sometimes you hear about these horrific stories, the chimpanzees that uh, attack the thing. 
you have a complaint against the chimpanzee? Anybody is upset at the chimpanzee? I, I, I don't think so. All right, you thought it was domesticated, but turns out it's still a chimpanzee. It's like the story of Rambam, right? The story of Rambam. The story of Rambam is there was once a fellow who said, there was once a fellow who said that he could train animals to be just like human beings. And, and he said, I'll prove it to you. Come to a meal in a month and I'll show you that I can train animals to be like human beings. And so Rambam Maimani shows up to the meal and indeed there are cats, right? Not Yanko cats, but like an actual cat, like a feline cat holding a platter, holding, they were the waiters, standing on hind legs, holding little platters of food, walking around. And Rambam said, that's marvelous to the host, that's marvelous, you've done well training these animals, it's great. He says, all right, just one thing. He pulls out a mouse from a box in his pocket, he drops it on the floor, the next thing you know, the cats throw the platters of food and chase the mouse. What's the point? At the end of the day, a cat is still a cat, but a human being is meant to be a mensch not meant to run after mice, whatever that is. A human being is meant to be a mensch. Even when there's a mouse, even when there's a buck, whatever that means, whatever that is, meant to be a mensch. So, here's the point. There is the code of creation that's already set. And that is the landscape and the rocks, and the earth, and the trees, and the plants, and the grass, and the birds, and the fish, and the animals, everything is coded. It's only human beings that have the power to beautify the code, to enhance the code, or to wreck the code. That's what free choice is. And it's not, you know, when we, it's not the, 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 the little stuff. You know, oh, I'm on a hike. Should I go down the right path or the left path? That's not, that's not altering the code. Free choice is not, you know, like, where should we go on vacation? Free choice is, although that's choice, that's not what we're talking about here. Free choice is about moral decisions, ethical decisions, right and wrong. That's when we either enhance the code, support the code, build on the code, or conversely, break the code, and destroy the code. That's what's at stake. It's either enhancing or compromising the code. So you and I have the power to take God's code and make it even better. Not because we're better coders than God, but because God built it into the code that we can continue building on the code. But we also have the power to sabotage the code of creation through our choices. That's what free choice really means. Are we going to, using a different analogy, right? Using the Garden of Eden analogy. We're all gardeners, right? This is God's garden and God put us in charge. Either we're planting or we are destroying. It's one, or, one of two options, right? There's no neutral. Because in, in gardening as in life or in life as in gardening, either you're actively planting and weeding and nurturing your garden or... It's being overrun, and it's dying, and it's decimated. It's one of two options. We are the gardeners. Hashtag, if you want a hashtag for today's class, we are the coders. I'm giving you two. We are the coders. We are the gardeners. This is it. This is us. This is our task. This is what free choice is. 
And so we get back to the possibility of evil that we've been speaking about the last few weeks. And here we have a radical notion that the possibility of evil is much more neutral, sorry, much more um, innocent than the active choice of evil that human beings can commit. Say that one more time. The possibility of evil is much less devious than the actual commission of such choice by a human being. In other words, God created the possibility of evil or for evil. God created the possibility of a negative choice. But when we act on that possibility, that's worse than the possibility existing itself. Why? Because the possibility for evil in this world exists per God's coding of creation. God coded the universe in such a way where there is holiness, and that's not some super, some like esoteric concept. Holiness means, Kedusha means, that which is aligned with the end game, with, with goodness and godliness. So God coded things into the universe that are, that are in alignment. Let's use that. It sounds like a much more new agey, uh, neutral term. God created things that are in alignment, and God created things that are not in alignment. All of that, however, is per divine code. But when a human being chooses to go down the rabbit hole of those things that are not in alignment, that actually further, not further, that actually destroys the code that God created. Why? That God, that God coded into creation. Because as we've said the last few weeks, God created the possibility of negativity. God coded those things that are not in alignment, but they were coded for the express purpose of us not acting on it, not engaging in it. When we engage in it, we give more life and vitality, so to speak. We give more energy, more attention to the things that are out of alignment, which in essence are kind of like a black hole of existence because they exist, but they shouldn't exist. I'm using, borrowing the term black hole very loosely, right? I don't mean like scientifically a black hole, but you know, conceptually, it exists, but it shouldn't exist, but it does exist, but we're definitely not meant to go there, or maybe Bermuda Triangle. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. Did we debunk that? Is Bermuda Triangle fine nowadays? Yes. I remember in the 80s, it was all the rage. That and quicksand. Who remembers quicksand as a fear? That was like, oh my God, quicksand, it's going to be the end of, of everyone. You'll be driving one day, and then quicksand, and you're done. And even in comics, there was always quicksand. Anybody ever encounter quicksand? I'm putting my hand down because I don't think we've ever encountered quicksand. Yaakov, it seems, has encountered quicksand, but Yaakov, the good news is you're still with us. So I imagine that it wasn't as bad as the, uh, all the depictions uh, depicted. But back to the point. Quicker. You're quicker than the quicksand. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Quicksand has met its nemesis. <laughs> anyway, what's the point? The point is that God created, God coded everything including those things that we're not meant to touch. God says, don't go there, right? That's not what you're meant to be doing. You have better things to do than go to those places that are those spaces of emptiness that are not aligned with what I actually want. Now, did I create it? Yes. Did I code it? Yes. Is it still being coded? Yes. Are you supposed to go there? No. Why does it exist? 
so that you have free choice. Because if not, then you're just like the lion who has a nature to, to eat and to kill to eat. You have a nature to do good things. That's still the same nature. There's still nothing being accomplished. The whole point is God created us to be partners in coding. Co-coders. Co-coders? Coders. Something like that. God created us to be developers of this incredible platform that he built. It's like the latest trend in gaming is you don't create a finished world, but you allow your, the players to co-create that universe and to build it as they go in. That's like the holy grail of gaming is like to empower people that they're co-creators in the experience, which is very vulnerable, by the way. There's a huge amount of vulnerability, both in the gaming element, but also let's get back to God, right? God could have created a, a closed universe, a closed system where you can't actually mess up anything. But if you can't mess up anything, then you can't actually benefit anything either, right? If you can't mess it up, then you can't radically fix it either or make it better, which means that you radically, that, which means that you don't actually have which means you're not actually doing anything. <laughs> you're, just, you're just playing, you're just walking around the, the existing sandbox, just checking out everything, but you're not actually doing anything. God wished to give people the greatest dignity, the dignity of being a creator. God created us in his image, which means that he created us to be co-creators. And that comes with a tremendous amount of power and a tremendous amount of responsibility. And what that means is, and what that means, frankly, is, is that we can build on the code and we can destroy the code. We can enhance the code and we can mess up the code. We can make it beautiful, we can make it messy. That's the power of the human being. But what we know for sure is that the stuff that God coded, that, that we're not meant to touch, in and of itself, that's okay. It needed to be there. Because the, the opposite of holiness needed to be there to provide the contrast, to provide the challenge, to provide the opportunity and the meaning, the meaningfulness of choosing good. But when we engage in the negative, that's when everything goes haywire. Because up until that point, everything is by design. The moment we choose that path, the negative path, that's when things are ad-libbed. That's when things... And not in a good way. That's when, that's, that's us driving the ship. That's us, that's us creating in a destructive way. Destroying. This is something we're going to get to today. <coughs> so really, what's the whole point of this? The point is the power that we've been given. The incredible power that we've been given to create radical change, either for good or for bad, or enhancement or... Uh, or sabotage. So uh, let me just check in. Does all that make well, Does all that make sense so far? Yes. Questions, comments. Looking around. Okay. Rabbi, uh, yeah. I did uh, extremely comforting or freeing to hear that when you said it's a lot less of a problem for there to be a potential of uh, uh, acting on Yetzirah versus, uh, uh, or, or there, that, that there is uh, Yetzirah versus acting on it. Because right. That, because we all, I think, walk around with, with so much 
I don't know, shame, guilt, whatever it is, just because we're always struggling, we can feel that the, the, the heaviness and the darkness versus the light and the, the positivity, and we struggle. We all want to be completely positive and be the you know, fresh ray of light, but uh, I haven't met more than a couple of people in my entire life that, that is completely positive. They, they never say anything negative, never think anything negative. Um, so, yeah, it's good that at least we know that it's just a natural thing, and God wanted us to have that. I think, thank you for saying that, because I think that is such a powerful way of articulating this, this idea and making it very real. In other words, making it, instead of like out there in the world, there's these options, good things and not good things, but you're, you're bringing it back into our own hearts and, 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 and innards, so to speak. Yeah, we all carry around, you know, stuff that's, uh, that maybe not, that's not so, not so holy, not so great. But that, that in and of itself should not, should not disturb us because that's God's code. That's all, that's all part of God's code. So the fact that you and I have negative temptations inside, so what? Right? So what? You're not the coder. God's the coder. The only question is, are you going to act on it? Right? That's the question. That's the question. Or if we act on it, can we recorrect it? Can we correct it? I'll tell you a story that I heard yesterday. Really beautiful story. This was told by um, Rabbi Drizen. Dina Schusterman's dad. He told this really great story. He said there was once a king who had three positions that became available. Three positions that became available in his, as a you know, minister of the king. Different positions. The highest position, the middle position, and the lower, lowest position of these three. He identified three candidates who he couldn't decide which one should be the top, the middle, and the bottom. So he decided to put them to the test. He goes over to each one and he says the following, same, same story, same scenario. He goes over to each one and says, look, I have a bottle of wine. This wine is the most incredible wine that you've ever had. And I know that if you have even one sip of the wine, I know that you're going to have the whole bottle of wine. It's so good. You've never had any wine this good. It's the most incredible wine you've ever had. It's from the royal um, winery or whatever. The wine cellar. Yeah. Tells it to each one. He says, but here's the thing. I want you to not have it, to not drink it for 30 days. At the end of 30 days... I want you to bring it back to me, and we'll say Lechaim. 30 days. But it's the best wine ever. It's a wine that if you taste it, you, it's, it's unbelievable. But 30 days, hold off from drinking it for 30 days. So, person, candidate number one, thanks, thanks the king. He locks it away in a cabinet in his house and immediately books an Airbnb for 30 days. He says, I am not out of town. He's like, I'm not even going to be in town. I'm not going to even put myself in any challenge and any temptation. I'm out. He goes, he checks out of Dodge for 30 days. That's candidate number one. Candidate number two. 
Candidate number two says, Oi, it's going to be so tempting. I'm going to lock up this wine in a cabinet in my house and I'm going to throw away the key. That's it. I'm going to throw away the key. Candidate number three, what he does is he puts it in his, I don't know, wherever it keeps wine in the house, he puts it on the shelf in his house. And he says, all right, I just won't have it. All right, so what happened with candidate number one? He was out of town. Didn't drink it at all. Candidate number two, he thought about it. He walked by that cabinet many times. He looked at it. Oof. But he didn't have the key. But he could have broken in. But he gave himself enough of a deterrent that even though he wanted to, he didn't. What about candidate number three? Well, let's go through what happened. So it was on his shelf. And he's like, oh, I just won't drink it. But, you know, a few days in, five days in, one night he couldn't fall asleep and he was thinking, wow, wonder what that wine tastes like. But then he dismissed the thought because he's not supposed to drink the wine for 30 days because he told him not to. So he, um, he says, I'm not going to drink the wine. But then a few days later, a few nights later, he had the same thought again, like, oof, I bet that wine would be amazing. But then he, he immediately dismissed it, like, no, I can't, I can't do it. But it's right there, but I can't. Until one night, about a week and a half in, he decided he's just going to open up the bottle of wine and just have one tiny sip. One tiny sip. So he sneaks down. I don't know why he's sneaking. but He sneaks down, just in case. He sneaks down to where it is on the shelf and he takes out, out the bottle of wine and he opens the bottle. And he pours himself a little, a little bit and he takes a sip and you know what? Lo and behold, it was the most incredible wine. And all he wanted was more. But he said, no, I told myself just one sip, just one sip. He said, and that's it. One sip is not going to make a big deal. You know that 30 days, the king's going to come back. It's more, more or less intact. I'm still okay. Well, you guessed it. A few nights later, he's like, wow, that wine was so good. I'm going to take one more sip. Well, before long, this became a regular habit of taking just one sip until after another week or so or two, that half of the bottle was finished. At which point he looked at the bottle and looked at himself and he said, the king is going to come back or I, have to, whatever, or I have to go back to the king in five days and half the bottle is gone. No more, that's it, no more no more, no more drinking from this wine. That's it. I'm done. I have to just, just hold myself back. And he does, and he doesn't drink anymore. Well, each one comes back to the king. Candidate number one, with pride and with, smi with a smile, gives back the whole bottle to the king. Well done. The second fellow knows about the struggle that he had, but the bottle's intact. Hands it back. And what about our third fellow, the third candidate? He, with shame and embarrassment, hands back to the king a half empty, half full, but also half empty bottle of wine. And he apologizes, and he's red in the face, and he's ashamed and embarrassed, and he apologizes, and he's beating himself up, and he throws himself on the ground to the king, expecting the worst. 
And the king responds to the three candidates as follows. Candidate number three, you're in the highest position. Candidate number two, the middle position. Candidate number one, the lowest position. And everybody was shocked. And the king explained, I wanted to check the character, test the character of these three individuals. Somebody who never put themselves in the space of challenge, that person's character was not, was not tested. So the person who booked the Airbnb, checked out of town for 30 days, and brought back the bottle, there's no indication at all about their character, just about their booking skills, right? There's no indication about what type of person they are. The second person, there was a little bit of a struggle. That's why they have the middle position. But it's that third individual who struggled and succumbed, but struggled again and then stopped. That is the greatest, that is, that is a testament to someone who has that ability to struggle and to fight and to battle and to work through things. And we may not get it right. We may very often not get it right, but we're still fighting the good fight. You see, the purpose, and Yaakov, thank you for inspiring this, uh, this recollection of this story, which I think is very powerful on a very practical level. You and I are not meant to be tzaddikim. Tzaddikim are people that don't have any misalignment inside. We are coded to have areas of misalignment inside and outside and all over the place. But at the same time, the Torah says, don't go there. But at the same time, we will go there. And yet, and yet, what our job is, is to not get too down with the downs, to not get too stuck in the stucks. I don't know what that means exactly, but work with me here. To not get too off kilter when we go a little off kilter, but to be able to, re, to recorrect, to re-navigate. It's like the GPS. We should learn from the kindness of our navigation systems. Even when we make a wrong turn, there is no chastisement, there's no berating. <laughs> you missed the turn. Are you kidding me? What were you thinking? I gave you so much warning. I gave you visual. I gave you verbal warning. And you still missed the turn? What kind of person are you? The GPS is always forgiving. The GPS just says recalculating, recalibrating. And you know what? You can make it up. Just, just, just turn left there and make another right, and you'll get back on track. And you know what? Maybe even you'll get there faster. Maybe it's a more scenic route. The GPS is a beautiful, beautiful analogy for how God, how Hashem certainly deals with us, thinks about us, and how we are meant to think of ourselves and to deal with ourselves. Not in a way of judgment, I beating ourselves up, I can't believe I did this, I can't believe I didn't do that, but rather pick, pick ourselves back, pick yourself back up and say, recalibrating, recalculating, rerouting, Got another turn up ahead, and we're right back on track. The, the biggest kryptonite is not the temptation. This is something that we've cited in classes previously. You may have heard me say this before. This is well-sourced in Judaism and Jewish thought. The greatest kryptonite to our progress, or our spiritual and, and human progress, is not, is not the mistakes that we make, 
but it's beating ourselves up about the mistakes that we made or defining ourselves based on our mistakes and not by our correction. In other words, it's making the mistake and then saying, oh, look what I did. Or this is who I am. I'm a person who makes these mistakes. Or, right, it's defining ourselves by the mistakes or thinking that we can't recover from the mistakes. That's what gets us stuck. So the third fellow candidate who drinks some of the wine and then says, that's it. That's a greater accomplishment than the person who never, who, than the person who checked out and never faced that bottle of wine at all to begin with. Susan, go ahead. Um, I would like to know if, um, if the, how the story would be written if candidate one said to the king, you know, I, I, I have, that scenario has happened to me before. Another king from another province gave me a bottle of wine. I drank it. I realized I couldn't, you know, I succumbed to the temptation. So now I know that I have to um, completely avoid the temptation. I need to get an Airbnb. And then the king would say, well, then both candidate one and candidate three need to be in the highest position because you have now your GPS or whatever now knows that you can't, you know, right. have the wine in the house. Right. Yes. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. In other words, there is nothing wrong. On the contrary, it is a sign of, of the struggle in a healthy way to recognize those areas in which we do need to stay far away from because we can't battle it head, head, heads on. I think, which, so in other words, you're 100% right. To me, the, 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 the chidosh, like the, the, novel, the novel idea of this, of this story is the fact that even when we fail, that doesn't put us completely out. Right? Even when, we, even when we fail. Now, not saying that if we failed and picked ourselves back up that we should then do it again, as you're saying, right? The point is the next time, okay, so know, know the limits, right? Know where you need to, know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run, right? We have to know. You got to know. Do, 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 do. Something, something, something. Anyway, back to the point. So we have to know ourselves. And that's part of, that's also, as you said, that's part of the, that would make the king appreciate the depth of, of that person as well. But, and I think this is where we get really stuck. It's like perfection or bust. Either I got it right or I got it wrong. Either I'm good or I'm no good. And honestly, that, could, that, that perception could arise from our text, the text that we're studying. Either it's holy or it's unholy. Either it's aligned or it's not aligned, right? Either it's life or it's death. The point is that we're not saying... What's death? No, it just means not good. The point is that it doesn't mean necessarily, right? All or nothing. It doesn't mean, you know, God or bust. What it means is, as, as a meditation to understand, where is it that we are living our best selves to borrow a... Uh, Sorry, I think I messed that up. To borrow an Instagram turn. Where is it that we're living our best lives? And where is it that we're not living our best lives? And even when we find ourselves stuck in that space of not best lives, the idea that we can recalibrate and we can reconnect with what is truly aligned. Um, I want to make it bigger. 
And we can make it bigger. Reva wants to make the squares bigger. All right. In my day, we called this the Brady Bunch. Okay. Yes. 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 All right. There you go. All right. Now, back to our story. Your, your day was really back in the day. I mean, really, really back. I don't know if it was that back in the day. I mean, I don't, I don't know if, well, I don't, I don't know if it was reruns or, or the original. I don't know if it was the original. Either way, back to our story. So we talked about coding. We talked about the essential value, necessity of every character the way it should be, the power that human beings have to further build the code or to compromise the code, God's vulnerability in giving us that power. The idea that we have the existence of negativity in the world and also the temptation of negativity in our hearts, in our inner worlds, how choosing, acting on that negativity is that's where the destructiveness happens as opposed to the mere existence of sad temptation. And this last point to kind of balance it out was to say that even when we choose that path, you know, even if slash when, when slash if we choose that path, there's always a way of recorrection, of correction, but correction can't happen unless we know that one is a path that's healthy and one's a path that's not so healthy, right? If the fellow in our story of the three candidates with the king, right? The fellow with the wine. If he told himself at any point in that narrative, once he started drinking from that wine, that you know what? I deserve it. And who cares about the king? Well, the story would end differently. It's only because at some point he realized that this is not where he needs to be. And he needs to be in a different space that he's able to stop and he's able to correct and that is actually the greatest. The greatest is not just when we have a, a potential and we stay away from it, but when we've even been down that road and now we're not down that road. That's the greatest because not only is it there theoretically, we know what it's like. And whether it's because we're actively or we were actively, it doesn't make a difference, right? As Susan's question pointed out, I think that that's the point. Whether it's now or it was, whenever, we know what that's like. And not going down that path is the greatest light generator possible. In the language of Kabbalah, the Zohar says, When, kad means when, kad Sitra when you, Eskafi means when you hold back on that Sitra Akra, oh, you know Sitra Akra by now, right? Klipa Sitra Akra on the negative. When you hold white knuckle the Sitra Akra, in other words, you really want to. You started the wine already, or you once had that bottle of wine, right? That Whatever metaphor that is, right? But Eskafia, but you're holding yourself back right now. Kad Eskafia Sitra Akra, when that happens, when you hold back on that negative space, God's glory, so to speak, is revealed in all, of, in, in, all, in all the worlds. In other words, in the entire strata of, of existence, from the highest worlds to this lower world, there's nothing that unleashes an atomic force of divine light as holding ourselves back from 
a temptation, from some sort of thing that we want. Getting back to my example before, if you and I are the lion and we see the buck that's innocently drinking from the pond, from the lake, and we're hungry, and it would be so easy to dash in like, you know, 2.3 seconds and, and attack and end it for the buck, but we don't, or even if we're on the way and we stop ourselves, or if we've done it before, but we don't do it now, the bottom line is that is the greatest, the greatest act that a person being can do. Even greater on some level than never doing it in the first place. Because never doing it, it's not actually necessarily building any more code. It's just following the rules. It's, it's recognizing the contours of the code of the universe and not pushing against anything too hard. But this, this is something else. Free choice, when free choice comes in, that's, that's something marvelous. That's something, dare I say, even miraculous when you think about the human being and the human condition. All right. Does all of this make sense on some level? Yes. Sort of. Yes. I'm seeing s Toba. I, you're with me, so that's, that's okay. If you're with me, then we can. <laughs> all right. Let's jump into some text. Let's read some text inside. With all of this information, my hope is that we can navigate successfully the, uh, the text reading it inside, which, as always, is our goal. I'm going to pull up on my computer first, the text, pull up the text on my computer first, and then I'm going to share it with all y'all momentarily. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all right. Here we go. Again, you can, I think the book is still out of print. Last I checked, but you can Find the book on HebrewBooks.org and in other spaces as well. All right. Here we go. I'm about to share this with you. Arrogance and idolatry. The bottom of page 64 of the book, Overcoming Folly, Discourse 3, Chapter 2. We started this last week. We're up to the parallel between arrogance and idolatry, which again is all about <clears throat> misalignment. Understanding the nature of things that are not aligned. We talked about code. Everything's been coded. God coded everything, except for free choice, right? That's, but God coded all of the temptations, all of the, you know, the, the evil inclination. All that's coded into the universe, into, our, into the human, human being. All that's coded. But, but what is the code of those things, of those evil or negative elements? It's lack of transparency to its source. Lack of translucence. It does not reveal its source. 
Let's jump right in. Arrogance and idolatry, quite the reverse. Not only does it not say, God is in control, God coded me, avoid me at all costs, quite the contrary, evil as coded raises itself like the evil as coded raises itself like the eagle. Nothing wrong with the eagle, but this is a, a euphem or, or an expression used in Kabbalah. Raise, like the eagle soars the highest. This, that's a, a representation of ego that is out of control. So, again, no, no, no issues with eagles, but with human beings, that's uh, over soaring ego. It raises itself like the eagle proclaiming, Aniva Afsi Od. I, and there's nothing more. In other words, nothing is above me. Or, like Ezekiel says, um, quoting Pharaoh, the river is mine, the Nile River is mine, and I created myself. There's a word missing there from the translation. Leah Oiri, the river, the Nile, the Nile is mine, Vani Asisini, Asisani, and I created myself. That's what Pharaoh said. Ezekiel is quoting Pharaoh's perspective on life. You know, Pharaoh, no matter how many plagues he hit him with, he's still like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I got this, I got this, right? He like can't admit that God is in control. The river is mine, I created myself, I got this, I'm still in control. Even as the ship is sinking, as Egypt is burning, as his house, his own house is on fire, he's still like, I got this, I got this, I got this. Nothing to see here, no problem. I'm in control, says Pharaoh. That is the essence of idolatry, of what we call sitra akra, the opposite of whole, the opposite of alignment. What is alignment, spiritual alignment? It's I'm in alignment with God. I know my source. I'm transparent to the source, to God. I'm aligned with God. What's the opposite? Sitra akra klebo, what's the opposite of alignment is I'm aligned with myself. It's either aligned with God or not aligned with God, and in that case, aligned with self. Thus, our sages said, take a look at the next page, that arrogance, the Talmud says, that arrogance is equivalent to idolatry. That's, by the way, that's a hot take. The Talmud totally drops a hot take. Arrogance is like serving idols. And you're like, whoa, what's the connection? Sir, I'm not bowing down to some sort of like little statue thing, wood statue or stone thing. I'm just arrogant. What's the, what's the equivalency? So he says, basically, idolatry means considering something as an entity independent of the creator. Right? What is idolatry? Idolatry is saying there's God and the sun also has power. There's God and the moon and the stars. There's God and this little statue. There's God and money. There's God and whatever it is. Basically deifying, giving power to anything else. Isn't that what arrogance is? Me worshiping myself, right? I believe in God, but also myself, right? Also, the river's mine, the Nile's mine, and I made myself. It doesn't have to be an outright denial of God altogether. It could be also like a partnership. Like there's God, but there's also the idol or me. Arrogance is equivalent to idolatry. Idolatry means considering something as an entity independent of the creator is not necessarily, there should be necessarily there, is not necessarily, it could be, but it's not necessarily absolute denial of God. As the Talmud says, says that sometimes those that serve idols can call God 
the God of gods. In other words, somebody who serves, worships idols, non-monotheists, could say, I believe in God, ultimately, but on a practical level, I believe in all these other gods. That's still idolatry. Just, just to explain for a moment, it's like the original idolaters, according to Maimonides, the way he explains how idolatry became a thing, how it went viral in the world right before Abraham. But how did you go from like Adam and Eve who knew about God to idolatry? It didn't happen overnight. People knew about God, but they said, there's no way that God is actually hands-on involved in the world because God is like so big. So certainly God put other things in control, like the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if we want something, you don't go straight to the king. You go to whoever the king put in charge, right? It would be a chutzpah to call up the king every time you needed something. Hey, king, I need rain. The king would be like, bro, I put like clouds in charge or the moon or the sun or stars. Like, go there. Don't come to me. So the original idol worshipers were actually, they felt that they were doing God a favor and they were honoring God by acknowledging other forces. Judaism says, Abraham said, that's idolatry. This is what monotheism is, right? Real, pure monotheism is that's a problem. Why is that a problem? Because God is not a CEO who'd rather play golf than deal with the world. God is not too big to deal with the nitty-gritty. God is infinite, which means God is not too big. God can also be very small. Does that make sense what I just said? Because the moment you make God too big is the moment you limit God, which, let me just say this in, a, in different terms. In their desire to not limit God, they, paradoxically, limited God. The philosophers, and this is well documented, even Greek philosophers had this thought. In the philosophers' attempt to not limit God, they ended up severely limiting God and saying God is too big for this world. Guess what? You just shoved God out. You said God can't be here. Is that not a limitation? There's a limitation to say God is stuck here, but there's also a limitation to say that God is stuck there. Both of those are limits. What is true infinity, true limitless, limitlessness? I think I got that right. What is truly being without limits? <laughs> what is that? That is not being stuck here, but also not being stuck there either. Being able to move, so to speak, not literally, but being able to simultaneously be beyond and within, infinite and finite at the same time. That is true infinity. So, what's the point? God is both beyond creation, and very much involved in creation. We call that in Kabbalah, Sovev Kalaman and Mamali Kalaman, in terms that we've talked about before Kabbalah and Kafi. God is both transcendent and imminent. And so, what's the point? Idolatry has no place, because God didn't check out and give the power to the sun, moon, and stars. God utilizes those as tools to run His world but not that he gave them power independently of him. This is the core distinction between monotheism and non-monotheism, at least according to Judaism, right? 
So non-monotheism says, well, God gave other things in control. And by the way, the next step of that, the next evolution of that is, well, if the sun, if God gave the sun such an important position, then we probably should not only ask the sun when we need things, but honor the sun. And we can't honor the sun directly, so we'll create an image of the sun and worship that image of the sun, which we call idols. That's the exact evolution. Oh, and then the final step is, oh, well, if the sun, moon, and stars, etc., run all this stuff, so then who says there's even a God to begin with? Maybe this is all there is. And that's the final step of the evolution of idolatry. Which means that the first step in the antidote to idolatry is recognizing that God is here and God is in control and God didn't check out. So, what is idolatry? Ascribing power to anything other than God. And isn't that what arrogance is? Arrogance is, but look at me, ascribing power to something, self, other than God. The Talmud says, one who is arrogant is like they are serving idols. Why? Didn't bow down to an idol. I still believe in God. Sure you believe in God, but you also believe in something else. All right, let's go back. We're going gonna, gonna, gonna to finish off a little bit more text inside and then wrap up today's session. Rather, the Klipot and Sitra Achra regard themselves as independent beings. Now, that, by design, it's not like self-driven. By design, that's how they're, they're, they're created to feel as independent beings. In this they separate themselves from the holiness of God, for they are not null before Him. The divine holiness rests only upon what is null. Null means so many different translations here for the same word in Hebrew, batal or bitl. It's um, not getting in the way, right? They are not not getting in the way before God. The divine holiness rests only upon the things that don't get in the way from God. Zohar calls them, rather, Sitrachra and Klippa, peaks of separation, like mountain peaks. Imagine you're looking out Colorado at the mountains, the mountain range. Beautiful, gorgeous, right? But each mountain has its own independent look. Like, I mean, today we would use um, a uh, downtown, you know, cityscape, you know, the, the skyscrapers as peaks of separation. Each independent building rising up to the sky. That's like ego. Each one independently rising up. This is a denial of God's true oneness, which tells us that all God's true oneness dictates and means that all are considered as nothing in His presence, truly nothing before Him and His will that gives life to all and constantly creates them from utter nothingness. In other words, the truth is that everything is coded into being by God, which means that without the code, nothing exists. So yeah, Pharaoh you're the big shot, you know, the big man on the Nile River campus. I don't know about that. Because without the code, you don't exist. And Klippa and Sitra what, you're all this? You're not. You're coded into being. It's only this false impression that we think sometimes that, oh, this is separate, or I am separate, or the other is separate. That's all the, the false impression. Now, this clarifies the state, sorry, the status of all of the things that we're meant to avoid, all of the things that we're meant to avoid, that we're meant to avoid are coded in creation by God. Absolutely coded. That's how it's here. If it's, 
If it's here, it was coded by God. That's for sure. But there are many things that were coded that were not meant to engage in. They were coded to avoid. And when you look at them, they say, look at me, look at me. Don't you want some of this? And the answer is, maybe, but I'm not going to because you are denying your source. Now, that's not a choice on their part. They're coded to deny their source. They're coded in a way that obscures the source, the coder. But that's what they proclaim. Look at me. Isn't this great? Forget the source. Look at this. We're meant to avoid it. All of that is by design. Next week, we start the next chapter, which is chapter, I think it's chapter three. I just closed my screen. Chapter three. And chapter three picks up on what we discussed today about um, sabotage. Sabotaging the code. Because God created the code to proclaim its own identity outside of its source. That's how God created it. So no, no, no tainus, like we'd say in, in Hebrew. No, we can't have any complaints against it. That's how it was coded. But when you and I jump in on it, when you and I say, no, this is, a, this is great, this is amazing, this is the best, that's when our choices are misaligned Still not the end of the story, because like in our story of the wine, we could still get back on track. But that's when we get into the negative territory, and we need to understand that it's negative territory in order to pull ourselves back out, which is what this book, Overcoming Folly, is all about. It's how to keep our heads aligned with truth, so that when we find ourselves either being tempted into that, or we find ourselves in the thick of things in the negative place, how we can extract ourselves and get back to a healthier place for ourselves and for our connection, for our alignment, and for the world at large. Each one of us is a letter in the Torah. Each one of us is one of those inscribed characters in the tablets. Each one of us is an irreplaceable line of code or character of code in, in God's divine master plan. Each of us is necessary. We're not arbitrary. We're necessary. Let us always remember our true value and let us stand up with not arrogance, but with a strength and a pride in having a mission and being who we are and in making, in, in making this world, this garden, a truly beautiful place. Thank you for joining me today for Kabbalah and Coffee. I hope you enjoyed the class and I can't wait to continue our studies next week. Speaking of next week, super Pleasure, Adam. Great to have you here. Speaking of next week, very important announcement, an announcement that I've made several times before, but it is really, really important. And that is, we have a very special honor and distinct pleasure to welcome Marion Blumenthal Azan to our community via Zoom virtually from her home in New York. This is David's mom, who is a survivor and an author. Her website is fourperfectpebbles.com. You can learn more about her. To hear her live speak, tell her story, and just her incredible journey, and her faith, and her hope, and her positivity, it's incredible to hear this. Please join us next week, 7 p.m., Sunday evening, March 14th, 7 p.m., 
as she tells her story to us right on Zoom. I'm going to share this image with you. This is what it looks like, faith and fortitude. Not what it looks like. This is what our what the image that we've created for this set for this evening looks like. So if you see an email for it, if you find it on our website, you know what you're looking for. Faith and Fortitude, Historic Evening with Marianne Blumenthal Azan, Holocaust Survivor and Author. Please join us then next week and share the information with others so that others can join because this is going to be absolutely incredible. All right, so that is it for right now. Oh, one more thing I should mention. Along the lines of things that are upcoming, we have an art evening. Paint at home. Think Bob Ross. Um, Alex, good question. I'm going to address that in a second. Um, Bob, think Bob Ross, right? Paint at home. Um, we have with us, we're going to have on March 18th, Thursday night, March 18th, an evening of painting art where there's, we'll have a, an art instructor guiding us through a gorgeous painting. The theme, it's going to be a Jewish theme painting. Um, it's going it, to, the, the, the style, the, the image or the, the painting, the art will be of ultimately the Western wall. It's gorgeous and you will be able to paint it at home. Even if, even if you don't have any previous artistic knowledge or um, experience. If you do, great. Even if not, it's also, you'll also be able to do it. And just painting and expressing art is so powerful on many levels. It allows us to get in touch with, with parts of us that perhaps we're not, if we're not an artist, that we're not usually in touch with. So it is tremendously beneficial and powerful. So everybody's invited to join me. Um, I will also be painting March 18th for that special evening. Um, it's also available on our, you can find the information on our website, intangewishacademy.org. By the way, if you don't have, or even if you do have, um, art supplies at home, this comes with a kit. You will get a kit with all the art supplies, a canvas, the paints, the brushes, the whole deal, um, all part of the package. All right, that's all the news that's fit to print. I saw something in the chat that I wanted to address. Um, Alex, thanks Susan, thanks Adam. Alex asks, what are your thoughts about mathematics being, being part of a universal code in relation to God? That's a fantastic question. And Kabbalah definitely makes connections between mathematics and Kabbalah. It's really powerful. And I, you know, this is, don't have time to get into it right now, but there are definitely connections. Um, now, is mathematics the code that God uses to create? I wouldn't go so far to say that that is the code, but mathematics is part of the code of creation. In other words, it is a truth that is, a mathematical formula is a truth that's embedded in the code of creation. In other words, it's part of the fabric of the code, and it reveals, it can reveal incredible secrets about creation itself. Um, the Rebbe, for example, spoke about, I want to say, Pi and the connection between pi, you know, like pi, pi, the mathematical formula pi, and the concept of Shabbat and the Jewish cycle of the week. So, I mean, just some incredible stuff in, in Kabbalah and mathematics, incredible connections. Um, maybe we'll, we'll get to that at some point. 
uh, but it's, uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to that. Mariana, glad yeah. you enjoyed it. Got a question? Yes. Um, so uh, with our, everything built into the code, the Yitzhahara, the Yitzhotov, um, and this week's Parsha, we actually talked about what you just uh, touched on, which was um, the, the egocentric uh, thought of the slaves, meaning, well, um, if we don't trust God because uh, he wasn't there for 210 years, and therefore, um, if he's not here, we, if it, you know, nobody, we're, we've been on our own for so long that we don't trust. We have lost the ability to trust. So obviously they were kind of set up for that. Adam and Eve were kind of set up. They were a little naive, et cetera, or were too altruistic and too, uh, you know, they bit off more than they could chew, however you want to view it. But what about these guys? I mean, why, if they were set up uh, for this, uh, failing at the golden calf, and yeah, I know it's a few of them, but it was, all, it was a lot of them as well. Um, why were they punished? If uh, God set them up for this, why the punishment for the golden calf? So I, I hear your question. Um, I hear your question. I think like this. There's a few points. Number one, that relative to what could have happened in the aftermath of the golden calf, I think that the vast majority, like 99.9% .9 of the people, um, experienced the possibility of reconnection in a powerful way. So I think that the, the experience of the golden calf in its aftermath was not one of divine retribution, like, oh, my way or the highway. It was, on the contrary, it was God's understanding of, of the human condition and God saying, all right, there is a second chance, but you're going to have to create it now, right? I'm not going to give it to you. The whole point is that you're going to create this now, this, this second chance back. Why are we held accountable at all if, if this is programmed in, in, in our nature and in creation? Well, the answer to that is, and maybe we didn't focus on it sufficiently, is that in addition to the, what we would call the negative code, I mean, it's all divine code, right? But what the, the, the code that, drive, that pushes us in a negative uh, space, when it comes to human beings, we also have a positive code. And I probably didn't mention this enough today. Unlike the lion that only has the code that says, the wiring that says, you're hungry, kill and eat, we have another wiring inside of us. Um, a conscience, we have a divine soul, we have a higher self, we have a godly soul, right? We have another set of wiring, another set of, of code that tells us what is right versus wrong and where we should be as opposed to where we shouldn't be. So that's why there's accountability because together with the negative, so to speak, we're also given the positive in a very strong measure. In fact, it's a fundamental Jewish belief that no one is given any one side that's stronger than the other, which means that someone who has a lot of temp negative temptations also has incredible spiritual gifts. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a really powerful story that I heard about the Lubavitcher Rebbe where somebody, a young man came to, to the Rebbe, and it's not really important, it's not, it's not at all important what the issue was, but he was kind of bearing his soul about a struggle that he had that was a really, really, it wasn't just a very deep struggle, but it was a really, you know, uh, I don't know how to say this. Um, it reflected uh, an unholy struggle, so to speak. I mean, every struggle is holy, but it was in, in an area of unholiness. 
And, and you might have thought that the Rebbe would like chastise him and say like, oh, like, that's terrible. The Rebbe said to him, I'm jealous of you. That was his response. First, I'm jealous of you. He was, that was the last thing he expected to hear. It's like, Rebbe, I'm struggling with this. And the Rebbe said, I'm jealous. Like, what? He said, God only gives people challenges and temptations that they have that they're equipped to handle. God never gave me that challenge. That means that I don't have the potential. I don't have the power to combat that. But God gave you that challenge. God gave you that temptation. That means that you have a spiritual gift, a spiritual ability to withstand that. And that means that you have an ability that I don't have. I'm jealous of your opportunity. And that's a reframing. And this is, by the way, if you want a master reframer, just read the letters and listen to the, to the encounters, people, conversations with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Just absolutely transformative type of framing. It's, it's, it's actually breathtaking and astounding to see a human being just with a clarity of a vision and understanding of the human condition to be able to frame whether it's a business question, a, a, physical, a health question, a spiritual question, to frame it in a way that completely undoes, all, undoes the question. So this person comes in feeling bad, feeling guilty, feeling down, feeling low, feeling worthless, comes in, and the Rebbe's first words are, I'm jealous of you. And in that one moment, everything changes. Are you with me on, the, on an energy level why that everything changes? Even without saying anything else, Right, even without explaining it, the Rebbe is saying, I'm jealous of you, gives oxygen to the person now, right? Validates oxygen and just completely changes everything. And most likely, again, free choice is still free choice, most likely the person can make that positive choice to overcome with that reframing. The difference in reframing is powerful, and it's not a trick. It's true. It's absolutely true. But again, it goes back to your question. The question is, well, why, why were the Jews held accountable if they had all these temptations, they were slaves, whatever? The answer is simply because if they had the temptation, they also had the ability to overcome. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here, you know, thousands of years later and judge them. I'd rather judge myself, <laughs> frankly. I'd rather just, I'd rather look inward than look at uh, stories that happen with other people because that doesn't help me become a better person. What helps me become a better person is to think about the areas in my life that I need to improve, that I need to tweak, areas in my life that I'm falling short. And this is, this is what Afabrengen is really about. And I look at these Sunday mornings as we're learning chassidus, but we're all, Kabbalah chassidus, but we're also Fabrengen together, right? Fabrengen is a time for introspection. So it's a time that we speak less about Yenim, less about the other and more about ourselves. And even if we say words like you, we really mean ourselves. Classic Fabrengen is speaking to self, so that other and, and others are hearing at the same time, right? But it's um, it's uh, yeah. I'm seeing in the chat. Um, yes, when we experience negative effects of 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 not kosher indulgence, so to speak, not literally kosher kosher, but right, not holy indulgence, it can serve as a motivation for correction. If it makes our life life better, Adam is asking, then why? Um, yeah, then why would you stop doing them? Okay, good. It makes your life better when it doesn't make your life better in and of itself. Remember, it itself is dark code, so to speak. It's like the dark side. It's, it's the undesired area from God. It's, it, we're, and we're not supposed to go there. But insofar as there's value in struggle also, there's value in 
climbing out of a place of negativity to a place of positivity, there's also power that comes from those, from, from treading down that path. But remember, the power is not in that path itself, it's getting out of that path. In the story of the, of the three candidates and the bottle of wine, um, the king wasn't happy that the guy finished a half a bottle of wine. He was happy that the fellow stopped after the half bottle of wine and came back to the king and didn't run away and hide. That was where the strength came in. So we have to remember that it's not in the dabbling in those misaligned areas that strength happens. It's either repelling those or climbing out of those spaces that our strength is born. All right, that's it for today. I wish everybody a wonderful week. Shavuot Tov. Don't forget, join us next. Yeah, Matt, go ahead. Okay, this would be really quick. Um, there's this concept created by Nicholas Nassim Tlaib called anti-fragile, where when you look at a system, a system is anti-fragile if it becomes better, become more optimized after it makes mistakes. But then Oof. the same problem that I guess Adam mentioned, well, if you keep becoming better every time you make mistakes, then the logic would be always make mistakes. But then there's a balance of to shield yourself from making mistakes, but also to have the capacity to learn as well. Nice. And, and tell, tell, tell me the phrase again. What's it called? Fra um, uh, Anti-fragile. Anti-fragile. Nice. Cool. I like it. I like it. To Google we go. All right. We'll see you all soon. Thank you, Matt, for bringing it into contemporary terms. Oh, I should also mention one more thing. One more thing. Um, we, did, we started this. It's a two-part series. We started it last Monday night with Rabbi Usher Crisp, who is a futurist. I, I cannot even tell you, if you're into science and you're into math and you're into um, uh, um, philosophy and Kabbalah and spirituality, you must check this guy out and join us tomorrow night, 8 p.m., we did a class on time travel and teleportation, literally time travel and teleportation according to physics, math, science, and Kabbalah last week. This week is all about body 2.0, body regeneration and, and reversing aging and all that stuff. This, this guy, this rabbi is incredible. So if you didn't join last week, but you want, it, you want in on it, message me. Maybe not on that because we're going to close this in a minute and I, and I won't have the chat anymore. Send me a text, email, call me, whatever it is. Let me know. I'll hook you. I'll get you the information. Um, you, it's, it's like, it's really incredible. I think you'll all really enjoy it. All right. Is, that's it. Is the first class still available if we want to watch it? Yes, but it's, it's, uh, it's unlisted. So if you want it, we got, we got to be in touch. But it is available to watch. Yes, it is available to catch. All right. It's not at all. No, it's a different, diff oh, right. a, di a different phrase. Right. All right. We'll see you guys. Have a wonderful week. Shavuot Tov. All right. Take care, everybody. Be well. It's great to see you. Bye, guys.